welcome to After Alexander, episode 21, A Stepmother's Love. This episode will be a brief catch-up of the life of Antiochus I before his accession to sole power in 281 BCE. I know we've mentioned him on and off since episode 9, but I thought now would be a good time to give you all a brief and general refresher. It also handily allows me to refocus on the story so far, with Antiochus edging his way into the spotlight, rather than playing the second fiddle to his father, as he was the first time we covered some of this material. Antiochus was the elder son of Seleucus, and probably born in either 324 or 323, with different sources I've accessed in the past saying different things. For the sake of our coherent narrative, I approximated that he was born around the new year of 324 into 323 BCE, the last time we covered his birth date. Now to clarify, this is not a view on which date is the most accurate, it's simply a way of keeping the narrative coherent when we talk about him. As a quick aside, you'd better strap in, because there's going to be a lot of this kind of fuzziness in this episode. Anyway, the first time Antiochus properly appears in the political narrative is during the Battle of Ipsus in 301 BCE, during which he led the cavalry. It was the fact that Demetrius routed him which allowed Seleucus to split the forces of Antigonus and Demetrius, thus winning the battle. However, Antiochus is mostly absent from the narrative for several decades after his birth. In fact, the first time he truly comes to the forefront is during a famous incident that I've been hinting at for the past few episodes of the narrative, specifically the question of Stratonike. As we've discussed previously, Seleucus I had married Stratonike, the daughter of Demetrius Polyarchetes, as part of an alliance between the two. This was back when the Antigonids had freshly been demolished after the Battle of Ipsus, and Seleucus had stepped into the vacuum of threatening the other western powers from his position in Syria. By all accounts, Seleucus and Stratonike seem to have got on fairly well and lived peacefully for a few years. The two of them eventually ended up having a daughter, Phyla, who would go on to marry her uncle Antigonus II, Stratonike's brother. However, Antiochus eventually developed an intense passion for his stepmother Stratonike. The historian Edwin Bevan notes that he first pined to himself rather than revealing his feelings openly. However, he appears to have become ill with lovesickness, so much so that his father seemed to be afraid he might die. Apparently, the court physician, a man called Erasistratus, revealed what the actual cause for his illness was. Seleucus decided that Antiochus and Stratonike should be married, which Bevan ascribed purely to fatherly devotion. No word of what Stratonike herself thought of this whole deal, though the marriage would eventually produce five children, and seems to be cited as a happy one. Supposedly, Seleucus cited the idea that the king was above any law, a saying ascribed to the Persian king Cambyses by the historian Herodotus, in order to bypass any concerns people might have felt about a marriage that would likely have been seen as incestuous at the time. Antiochus was married to Stratonike in approximately 294 BCE, 
although there is once again some uncertainty with the date. Most sources that I've seen either list 294 or 293 BCE as the year when the marriage occurred. The majority say 294, so that's what I'm going to go with. As I'll eventually explain in more detail in episode 30, the dates for certain events get rather confused, so some assumptions are needed to keep a clear narrative. All you need to know, for now, is that I'm going to approximate 294 as the year when Antiochus married Stratonike. Sometime around the time of his marriage, his father Seleucus I also made him co-king over all the territories east of the Euphrates, so that he could focus on the west. The story goes that he summoned his army to meet at Antioch, and, at the same time as declaring the marriage of Antiochus and Stratonike to the troops, he proclaimed them king and queen of the east. Now, at this point, I do need to come back and somewhat redress my original dating of this event. When I first mentioned that Antiochus was made co-king a few episodes ago, I confidently asserted that this was in 292 BCE. However, I've since discovered that there are, again, sorry, quite a lot of question marks around this date, with figures ranging from 294 to 292 BCE in various sources. To cut a long story short, I'm going to go with what seems to be the majority view and switch my dating of this event to say that Antiochus was probably coronated around the same time that he was married. The dates I'm going to assume for the purposes of the narrative are that Antiochus was made co-king either at the same time as his marriage, as Edwin Bevan and other sources maintain, or shortly thereafter. So, that would either be 294 or 293, with the assumption of the wedding date that I've listed above. And so now we come to the children of Antiochus. What I'm going to do here is first tell you what we know for certain, which unfortunately isn't very much, and then fill in the blanks somewhat with some speculation. I'll obviously make clear where I'm conjecturing, but I thought it would be more interesting for you to listen to than simply a list of names and some partial dates. So, first what we know. It seems to now be accepted that Antiochus had five children by Stratonike. In no particular order at this point, Seleucus, Laodike, Apama, Stratonike, and Antiochus. We only have actual birth dates for two of these. Apama was born in 292 BCE, and Antiochus in 286. I'm going to cover this again in a few episodes' time, but it was once believed that Antiochus only had four children with Stratonike, the daughters in this case being Apama and Stratonike younger, and that there were two children by another woman, called Alexander and Laodike. However, I've only seen this written down in my 1902 copy of The House of Seleucus, and nowhere else, so as far as I can tell, this hypothesis appears to have been consigned to the dustbin of history. So, that's what we know, so now some conjecture. We've already seen, with Antiochus's own parentage, that naming children after their grandparents appears to be common for the eldest. If this same naming system holds, Seleucus Jr. and Apama would be the eldest, given that they're named after their paternal grandparents. I'm also going to go out on a limb here and say that Seleucus was, might well have been the oldest, Given that he will be made co-king with his father at most a few years after his accession, it seems unlikely that he was very young. If this is true, 
it would mean he was probably born sometime around 293, although I'm only ever going to use this hazy date to give us an idea of what we're dealing with when we talk about Seleucus Jr. After all, when we're talking about someone, it's nice to have an, at least an approximate age to work with. So, that's the conjecture on the children of Antiochus. Bear in mind that there are big question marks associated with all of this, and I'm not saying that what I've just said should be accepted as fact. After all, that's what the section above it is for. As I've already said, I'm going to return to all of this and more in episode 30, which will concern the, the life and death of the younger Seleucus. There's quite a bit of uncertainty and disagreement about the dating of various events during his life, so I'm going to return to Antiochus' coronation, wedding, and the birth of his eldest son then. For now, my approximations are that Antiochus married in around 294, was probably made co-king in either 294 or 293, and that his eldest son may have been born in 293 BCE. There are a variety of possible dates, but I felt I had to make some sort of assumption for the purposes of having an actual story. With that out of the way, let's get back to it. Antiochus ruled as king in the east for some years before his father's death, with his capital at Seleucia on the Tigris near Babylon. He appears a few times in the historical record before his father's death, such as when his father wrote to him at his base in Media about his plan to stage-manage the release of Demetrius I. For those of you who don't remember, his scheme was to get Antiochus to plead for his release, which Seleucus would pretend to reluctantly agree to. That way, Antiochus would get the credit of seeming magnanimous, while Seleucus would be able to release a political pawn back onto the chessboard. However, he wouldn't get the chance to do this before Demetrius died in captivity in 283. During Antiochus' time in power in the east, he also probably gained some military experience fighting against the tribes in Central Asia who made the mountains and deserts of the area unsafe for travellers. Importantly for what's going to come up soon, his hold over the rich province of Babylon also gave him access to finances second only to Ptolemy II in Egypt, which would no doubt be useful in the conflicts coming up. And so with that, we finally come back to the death of Seleucus I. As I said in episode 15, Seleucus was the only thing holding the plan of reunification together. Ptolemy the Thunderbolt had noticed this, which was why he assassinated him. As such, Antiochus is going to face some stiff resistance to his accession to a nearly reunified empire. He does have the advantage of being half Sogdian through his mother, which would go some way to keeping his eastern subject on side. As a matter of fact, he may well have been related to many of the Iranian nobility through his mother, which no doubt helped. However, that relationship would do nothing to mollify the Hellenistic states in the West, who had moments before been afraid of a complete Seleucid takeover. Now, with the death of Seleucus I, the man who would have reunified the empire if given a chance, the opposition is going to come crawling back out of the woodwork. Antiochus I was not in a great position when his father died, as we'll see. Large portions of the Seleucid army had deserted in the west, as we'll cover when we resume the main narrative, and he was hundreds of miles away from the crucial action over in the eastern Mediterranean. Despite this, 
he took swift action and charged west in an attempt to keep the western provinces under his control. With the death of Seleucus I, the fight to restore his ambition and his empire would begin. So, next time, we're going to have a brief look around to give ourselves a refresher of what the world that Antiochus inherited looked like. Then after that, we'll dive back in and start the story going again at 281 BCE. In the meantime, thank you all for listening. For any questions or comments, you can get in touch with the show at afteralexpod at gmail.com. Until next time, have a great week, everyone.